hates each other. Holy moly, that was awesome. I know, I know. We, we love each other, and that is a great sign of a wonderful church. Um, I just wanted to be able to share with you, uh, you know, uh, the installation of a new pastor marks the uh, official beginning of a new ministry. And uh, the purpose of this service, uh, outside of giving God all the glory and preaching his word, is to reaffirm God's leading in, in these three different ways. In the placement process and uh, to express congregational and pastoral dedication to the call of God in the ministry and to formally introduce the new lead pastor to the church and to the community. Um, at this time, I'd like to invite Rick Ayers uh, to come on up, who's the chairman of our elder board, and Roger Horning, who is our new lead pastor, to come on up here. And if you guys kind of stand right on over here, so it's easier for Paul. And uh, I'd also like to invite a very special guest. Uh, oh, man. Watch out, Paul. This is why I was trying to have them up front as, uh, so that they're not going to be pulling this stuff behind you. But um, his name is Paul Schleek. And uh, um, Paul, I'm going to ask you to come on up here as well. Paul is uh, on the leadership team of the EFCA West. He um, is an integral part of what happens in our denomination uh, throughout the country and especially right here out on the Western Territory. Uh, I've been ministered to by Paul personally, and uh, it's, it's really an honor. Roger specifically asked if Paul was available, and Paul drove up from Bakersfield this morning just to be here. So, uh, um, Paul really doesn't have a job title, but here's what you'll find uh, on the website. Because it's so diverse, um, his uh, responsibilities include biblical theology, and credentialing, care for pastors, support of pastor clusters. That's where a group of pastors will go and meet someplace on a quarterly time. And Paul is at so many of these clusters all over, up and down on the west side territory. And he's also involved in pastoral transition, helping pastors as they transition from a church and helping others uh, transition to a church. And so uh, he's been on the leadership team with EFCA West for the past 13 years. And before coming on board with EFCA West, uh, Paul had over 30 years in pastoral ministry, uh, ranging from a director of Christian education to youth pastor to senior pastor. Um, he's been an important mentor in Roger's life, and at Roger's request, Paul graciously accepted our invitation to come and be involved in this momentous occasion the installation of Foothills Church's third ever lead pastor. So Paul, thank you and welcome. Thank you so much. Uh, I used to live in Huntington Beach, which would have been a much shorter drive this morning. And that story of how you move from Huntington Beach to Bakersfield is a whole nother, but it had to be the call of God. But no, we're, we're really enjoying it. So. Is this being recorded? I need to make sure. It's a great privilege to be here. I love installations, but I particularly love them when I know the gentleman being installed and I know something of the congregation. Um, I was here a number of years ago with Will Regeer when you were going through your vision, kind of how's this all going to work. 
what do we do, why do we do it, how do we do it, and how do we know when it's done kind of thought process was, was great. And I was in graciously invited back to preach one time, too, so some of you have all forgotten that. But anyway, um, I had to look it up. But anyway, um, I'd like you two gentlemen to step forward. Um, as you know, when you, or may not know, but when you install a pastor, you've got the, the, the congregation who's trying to figure out what do we need with pastor next. Um, almost always it's not exactly like the last guy, uh, but nor do you want somebody totally different than the last guy. Because churches change. Um, I was privileged to serve on the Central Coast for about 16 years in Santa Margarita, town of 1100, so not at all like this. Uh, but in that, those over those years, I changed, the church changed. And so you've got the pastor trying to figure out, am I a fit? You've got the church trying to figure out, is he a fit? And I think we've got a good one going here. So I have a couple of questions here. First, uh, for Rick. Do you hereby certify, along with the entire elder board, that Roger Horning has been called to be the lead pastor under the guidance of God through prayerful deliberations of the church fellowship as prescribed in your church constitution? And Roger, do you hereby accept this call because you know it is the call of God for you and your family? And do you dedicate to faithfully carry out the position of lead pastor at Foothills Church with the Lord's help and prayerful support of the church body? In the kiss of the no, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Old habits die hard. No, you could go ahead and sit down, maybe. That's a that's a good thing. <laughs> and I'll leave. I'll leave. After my first ministry, uh, the, the pastor told me I would never make it in ministry. This is 40 years ago. He said, because you can't teach and you have no sense of humor. So I kept going. But anyway, um, Eugene Peterson, who probably has had the most impact on my own pastoral theology, not all my theology, but my pastoral theology, how do you do this, wrote in his classic work on pastoral theology called Working the Angles. He said, the biblical fact is that there are no successful churches. There are instead communities of sinners gathered before God week after week in towns and villages all over the world. The Holy Spirit gathers them and he does his work in them. In these community of sinners, one of the sinners is called the pastor and given a designated responsibility to keep the community attentive to God. And ever since I read that years ago, several decades ago, I, I began to think of myself as sort of the designated sinner. Uh, the, the one who is supposed to, like all other sinners, keep looking at Jesus. And so what I want to do this morning is share with Roger and Michelle and with this particular community of sinners the things that I've discovered about the designated sinner and his relationship to the undesignated sinners of the congregation. And having served for more than 30 years, as was mentioned, as the designated sinner and now 13 years as being the undesignated sinner and the churches I've been part of. There's a couple of things I want to point out. And first, we'll start talking to Roger. It's interesting, and we don't have time this morning because I want to leave him a couple of minutes to preach, um, that when you look through Paul's letters, especially to Timothy and Titus, there are really only two qualifications given for a pastor. And the first one is character, right? I mean, there's some specifics about what to look for in that, but the big category is character. As John Wooden said, who was a UCLA coach, if you don't know, yeah, and a Christ follower, 
He said, be more concerned with your character than your reputation because your character is what you really are while your reputation is merely what others think you are. And all of us have internal lives and things that we work through, but it's character that's at the core of what Paul was looking for and giving advice to the young pastors to look for as they're ministering in places. The second big category is healthy relationships. Healthy relationships with his own family, but also with the community, both the community of faith and the community around the community of faith. And many of the things that are talked about in those passages really have to do with, do you, do you get along with others? Do you play nice? Do, you, do people look at you and say, I, I don't know what it is about you, but I want to know more. And these people you hang out with, who are they? And Because there's something about your lives that is so different. Now, having given those two broad categories of character, the second thing that Paul addresses is roles and responsibilities. And uh, when you look at Acts, and again, the letters to Timothy and Titus, there are basically three titles given to the designated sinner who leaves the church. And these titles tell us a little bit about the responsibilities. The first one is elder, which is about being attentive to the direction the family's going and should be going. So, Roger, I have, actually, I have some more. The other one is the pastor who followed me in Santa Margarita. Because I want you to have that somewhere that will remind you that it's always about funeral. And it's always going back to God's character and what he's asked of you. Not necessarily what all these folks are going to ask of you. But what does God ask of you in this ministry? An elder is someone who's on the way. And, and one of the things he does is he teaches. He says an elder ought to be able to teach to explain clearly what they understand about God, about what he's done for us, who he is. And secondly, besides the broader teaching is what earlier generations called spiritual direction, which is taking that very same word of God, but rather than sort of broadcasting it to the whole congregation, this is what I think God is trying to say to you specifically from his word. Let's, let's open up this passage together because of what you're describing that's going on in your life. Here's what... Here's the truths about God and about you as a sinner saved by grace that you need to know, that very specific application of Scripture, basically speaking God into an individual's life situation. And the third thing that Paul talks a lot about is example, where the designated sinner says, this is the way, walk in it. Follow me as I follow Christ, right? If we ever get off that path, then you're supposed to all stop following but as long as we're following Christ, the scriptures make it clear we ought to follow those leaders that God has given us. The second is the pastor shepherd, which is being attentive to the flock, uh, both when they stray. the hills if you've ever reached an age as I have where you could use a little extra help to steadiness or if you've wanted to thump somebody really good uh, because that also comes into play here I mean I, I don't remember who said it first but you know we're supposed to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable that's that's kind of our role uh, the third is being an overseer which is being attentive to the big picture what's happening in around the church so I bought you a pair of binoculars 
and that is taking care of the church as you would your own family. When, when you begin to raise children, as many of you know, you think about what kind of adults do I want them to become, right? My, my wife and I kind of boiled it down to we want them to be the kind of people we would want to hang out with, right? So what do we have to do in the years of discipling them, disciplining them, encouraging them that would help them be who we think God has specifically created them to be? And that's the same thing with a pastor. You look at this congregation with all the various individuals and you say, not generically, how do I want them to be discipled, but specifically with individuals, how, what would I want them to be in light of who God made them so that they can grow in that? And then directing the affairs of the church, not on the basis of what your congregation wants, because they'll often ask you for things they shouldn't have, just like kids, but on the basis of seeing them clear enough that you know what they need as it's defined by God's word. So don't never get away from that. Henry Nouwen in his book, The Way of the Heart, says ministers are tempted to join the ranks of those who consider it their primary task to keep other people busy. The question that must guide all organizing activity in a parish is not how to keep people busy, but how to keep them from being so busy that they can no longer hear the voice of God that speaks in silence. And that is a challenge, especially in California because we, we pace in front of the microwave. I mean, we, we are busy. We, we got to get this thing done. Now, the irony is that deep down, your congregation who knows and loves Jesus don't want you to abandon that. They want you to be attentive to them and to what God's doing individually as well as collectively. Again, a lengthy quote from Eugene Peterson in his book, uh, The Contemplative Pastor, he writes, Century after century, Christians continue to take certain persons in their communities, set them apart, and say, we want you to be responsible for saying and acting among us what we believe about God and kingdom and gospel. We want you to help us be our pastor, a minister of word and sacrament in the middle of this world's life. One more thing. We're going to ordain you to this ministry. And we want you to vow that you will stick to it. This is not a temporary job assignment, but a way of life that we need lived out in our community. We know that you are launched on the same difficult belief venture in the same dangerous world as we are. We know that your emotions are as fickle as ours and that your mind can play the same tricks on you as ours. And that's why we're going to ordain you and why we're going to exact a vow from you. We know that there are going to be days and months and maybe even years when we won't feel like we're believing anything and won't want to hear it from you. And we know that there will be days and weeks and maybe even years when you won't feel like saying it. It doesn't matter. Do it. You are ordained to this ministry, bowed to it. There may be times when we come to you as a committee or a delegation and demand that you tell us something else than what you're telling us now. Promise right now that you won't give in to what we demand of you. You are not the minister of our changing desires or our time-conditioned understanding of our needs, or our own secularized hopes for something better. With these vows, we are lashing you fast to the mass of word and sacrament so that you will be unable to respond to the siren song. Now let me talk to the undesignated sinners for a minute, the rest of the congregation, because this is a relational thing that goes on here. Like so many ceremonies, the installation of a new pastor is something that Americans have pretty much abandoned, right? It's just one guy leaves, the other guy comes. But ceremonies matter. I, I did the joke on weddings, but 
why do we still want to do public ceremonies? It's so that there are people who are holding us accountable and are interacting with us on those commitments. It's good to pause and to think about this. Now, if the EFCA were organized like some groups, then as a bishop, I would just place the next pastor in whatever. But we're not that. We're autonomous but interdependent congregation, which means you, after much prayer and thinking and talking, decided that you wanted Roger to be your next pastor. So there are two things I want you to remember and three things I want you to do in the coming weeks, months, and years. Okay, for those of you taking notes, write carefully. The two things to remember. First, no healthy, life-transforming transforming ministry is ever the result of the pastor alone. Right? There be, sometimes you become famous pastors, but if there's any real life change going on in the church, he isn't doing it all. In fact, oftentimes you're not doing a lot of it other than being the voice in the pulpit, which I'm not negating, but the real ministry happens elsewhere. It's the result of the pastor, the congregation, the local church leadership, <coughs> excuse me, working together. My life verse, they're found in Ephesians 4, in which Paul tells that church at Ephesus that the gifted leaders are given to churches for a specific purpose, and this is the purpose. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith. If I was going to preach this, I'd stop right there and say, it's all y'all. Let me be southern here. It's you collectively. It's not just a few people are getting mature. Basically, Paul says in this passage, go back and check it out over lunch, that if not everybody's becoming mature, then really the whole body is not becoming mature. Attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, womanhood, personhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that, here's the result he's looking for, we will no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That's your role in this, is to take the things you hear and translate them into your family, your work, your neighborhood. That's one of your responsibilities. Secondly, because of the Ephesians 4 process, you're going to have to expect to change. I, I, I don't do change well. Most of you don't do change well. But the Word of God is all about change. If you've ever invited a neighbor who, for instance, is an alcoholic or has a lifestyle that in, under Christian standards, it's like, well, you know, are they going to make me change? You know, are we going to make you change? No. But that's certainly what we're going to be praying happens as you're exposed to God's character and his love and his grace and his mercy. Right? That's, that's the reason for coming. Invite me back and I'll preach from Psalm 73 and we'll talk more about that. I've been a pastor for over 40 years, which is amazing already. And a pastor can be a lonely place because we don't always get to hear from you what the Holy Spirit's doing. Part of that is because you don't verbalize it to us. And therefore, we begin to wonder, is anything going on? And just like in a family, right, you tend to focus on the misdeeds rather than all the times those little 
people did what they were supposed to do. I'm currently living with three grandchildren and their parents in my house. Yeah, that's right. Preach it. And it is a great joy and a great challenge, right? I can't remember now the last morning I slept in. But because we're more likely as pastors to hear the complaints rather than the, the, the glory to God kind of stories. So here are the three things I want you to do in the coming weeks and months. First, pray for Roger and Michelle and the Horning children. They're all making the transition. <clears throat> It'll be a little more dynamic for these two, but it still is a change. I remember when we left Margarita up on the Central Coast, and all three of my adult children, they'd already grown and launched, said, but where are we coming back to? And who's going to be my pastor now? And all of that kind of stuff. So pray for them as a family. I love Colossians 1.9. The first part of the verse says, and so from the day we heard of it, this is Paul writing, we've not ceased to pray for you. And that's great. The pastor's praying for the congregation. But I love the way when you get to chapter 4, verse 3, he says, and at the same time, pray also for us. You hear that? It's a two-way street. Roger's going to pray for you. You pray for he and Michelle and the family. The second is to encourage him. And can I just recommend, especially now in the 21st century, write a note. If it has to be email, go ahead, but write a note. Because now, probably more than ever, we value those. Why? Somebody had to get, find some paper in the house. And then they had to find a pen in the house that worked. And then they actually sat down to write that. And they couldn't click send. They then had to figure out, where's the nearest post office? i got to get a stamp, right? I still remember a Christmas in Santa Margarita where um, we didn't get the usual love offering. What we got were handwritten notes from, I think, about 99% of the congregation. And my kids, who are 40, 36, and 34 now, still remember that Christmas more vivid than anywhere. Because we'd always divvy up the love offering with them. We just felt like they've also lived with the congregation. We could get a little blessing out of it. I don't want to leave you thinking, though, that the occasional gift fart card for a uh, restaurant, uh, at least a step above McDonald's, isn't also appreciated. Um, but handwritten notes. Handwritten notes. Secondly, a phone call in which you say, I want to pray for you this week. What, what would be something at the top of your list? Or, I had never seen that in that passage before, and the Holy Spirit's already starting to make me feel like I need to do something about that. Because I'll tell you again, after 40 years of ministry, I didn't get many phone calls like that. What I got was, you preach too long. <laughs> or, why would you preach out of Ecclesiastes? Nobody, even Alistair Begg, says that you can't outline the book of Ecclesiastes, right? I mean, it's those kinds of things. And you've just come off of preaching your heart out. You're ready to collapse, and the phone rings, and they want to focus on that? Please do Roger a favor and just call him randomly and say, I love that you and your family are here. Or that time in the Word was sweet. I just so appreciate you keep going back to the basics with us. Whatever it is that God's doing, it just don't be that person that he dreads getting the phone call from. And the third thing with this I close, and I probably used up more than my time, is be a congregation about whom Roger can say, as Paul said to the Philippians, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, 
making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, which isn't very long, actually. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace. I'm going to ask Craig to come up, and we're going to pray over Roger. so much Paul thank you um, I am going to in fact I'm gonna have you stand back up because I'm gonna invite Roger and Michelle to come right on up here and if you guys would come right and sit down right there and um, you know uh, just a, a little side note uh, a few months ago um, when the staff uh, was trying to come up with what, were, what was our theme gonna be for Easter we had no idea that that theme all things new culminate in such an incredible way and um, I'd like to uh, invite the search team members that you have all been praying for Val Montague and Kathy Thompson and Justin Horry and Patrick Talfasa come on up and uh, this team that uh, you prayed for uh, through the months and months and months of the hard work and the digging in that they did. Um, here's the fruit and the culmination of that. I'd also like to invite my fellow elders on up, uh, Rick Ayers and Jim Bird and John Mayer and Dennis Sodron and Michael Williams and Wayne Van Every to come on up. And we're going to circle on around and going around that way. Wayne, going around that way. Yeah, 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 you catch him. We're going to leave that spot, make sure Johnny's going to come right here. And um, it is uh, just a, a privilege and a joy and excitement to be able to be involved in this process. Uh, I'm excited for you, my brothers and sisters because I, I believe that um, we have been blessed through the efforts of these individuals and uh, through your prayers, through their prayers and discernment. And um, I'm excited for Roger and Michelle and their four kids who um, are thankful that I didn't invite them on up here. <laughs> they owe me. Um, and... Uh, you know what? So what we're going to do now is we're going to uh, lay hands on Roger and Michelle. And uh, I'm going to ask you, if you're out there and you feel so comfortable, if you would reach on out. And uh, we're going to pray for them. We're going to have Paul pray first, and then Rick, and then Johnny Mayer, who is one of the founding members of this church and uh, the longest tenured elder. So, Paul, if you would please. Father, it is so good to be here today. And we are so excited to see what you're going to do with this.
this congregation with Roger and Michelle and the, this new partnership. I really believe with the very deliberate process that was used in, in choosing and looking for the next man that, that you really have unearthed the right guy for this season in the church's life. Father, we pray that he and Michelle will learn to love these people in this place at this time and that this congregation will learn to love them as they are and together they will grow in grace and in knowledge. Thank you for Roger. Thank you for Michelle. Thank you for their faithfulness to you. In Jesus' name. Just a quick sidebar because I always do a sidebar. Um, Roger, since our initial discussion uh, after, thank God, Paul gave us your name and encouraged you to reach out to Foothills, in December of last year, uh, I saw a couple things. I saw your heart was right towards God, that you know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, that you love your neighbor and you want to walk as your master walked. And as an elder of this church, we desire no more from you. Um, one thing you asked me during that initial phone call uh, when I was on the side of the road in Indiana freezing on a business trip, after you were a guy looking for a, a job, I thought, and you did something that just blew me away. You asked how I was and how my trip was going. And then at our first uh, meeting with the elders, you asked how all of us were. And it just opened your heart to us. Um, and again, to our brother Johnny, who just said you wanted to continue and come pray with him and for him. Uh, as I pray, uh, I just want the people to realize what we saw in this man and his wife and now his wonderful children. Uh, they're wonderful so far. They just admit it. Um, <laughs> no, no, all indications are wonderful. You guys are great. So let me pray. Lord. We ask you to bring us a humble, gentle leader of God and of man. Lord, we ask you to bring us a man full of grace and of mercy and of great faith. And as always, you deliver. We find that he is without partiality and without hypocrisy, a man that gives all that he is to the work of his faith, the patience of hope, and the labor of love. Thank you, Lord, as we celebrate your triumphal entry today. We also celebrate the leading of Roger Horning at Foothills Church. And we ask these in all things. Amen. Morning, everybody. Um, I'll pray in a second, but something I feel I need to say is I was sitting back there and uh, this is a church that... Uh, my kids grew up, they met people in this church and they married them. And when they showed that little video, my granddaughter was on there pointing out such blessings. And I just said, it's such a blessing to be a part of a family, a congregation, a community, all the things that are important to us. And if you're not partaking that in your life, man, you're missing life. 
I don't care if it's this church or whatever church. We have to be a part of that church all the way. The blessings are really here. I just felt like I had to step. Lord, again, in your scripture, you say, unless, unless you build the house, it really isn't in vain. And then we really kind of tackled this whole thing from that perspective, Father. Um, we had pressure put on us about, you know, if you found a guy, you won't. If you found a guy, you won't. Kind of constantly every week. And, um, but for the most part, the congregation was super patient. The elder board was super patient. And, uh, for all that, I thank you, Lord. But then, Father, when you brought the man, the man we knew was the right man, Lord, uh, we just thank you for that blessing and look forward so much to what, what it's going to bring to this community, to this church. Um, he's got a wonderful family. You set as an example, Lord. And I just want to thank you for him personally. That's in Jesus' name, Father. Amen. Um, Brothers and sisters, Foothills Church's third lead pastor, Roger Horning. have no idea how he's going to do it. Everybody can go ahead and find a seat, Michelle included. I don't know how he's going to do it, but uh, guess what? He's going to preach a message now. <laughs> so uh, more power to you, brother. Um, but that's how we roll here. So, you know, this is just letting you uh, see in advance. A lot of expectations. Hey. <laughs> no, hey, it's a great time, and Roger, come and bring the word. Oh. Come and bring the word. Well, thank you. Um, how incredibly humbling. And the, the one thing I would say that stood out to me as Paul was challenging the congregation is all those things that he was saying that you're all supposed to do, you've already been doing um, since, since I met you guys, and especially you know in that um, candidating week. Just amazing. So that was a great message. Thank you. And they're already on the right track. Hopefully I can get on the right track. And so, but I'm just so privileged and thankful to be here. If you have your Bibles, open them up to John chapter 12. And I just want to say, um, we'll be using the ESV today. And I want to thank you, those of you who sent me prayer requests and pictures. I realized later, I never told you my email address, but it is the same as the, all the other uh, pastors and, and staff at the church. It's roger at fcrsm.com. So that's my email address, and I really would appreciate you sending me your picture and some, a way that I could be praying for you. So thank you very much for that. I want to say that 8 in 10 Americans celebrate Easter, 
and half of Americans are planning to go to church on Easter. Um, Easter is statistically the highest day of attendance for churches, and so that's something to think about. If you think about getting in line at a store and half the people there are going to go to church and in your neighborhood, um, what an incredible opportunity next week is to invite people to church because they're thinking about going somewhere. There's a lot of people who don't go to church, and so they don't really know. They're still figuring out where they're going to go, and so I just want to encourage us with that. We're going to be looking this morning at John 12, 12 through 19, which is the triumphal entry. It's Palm Sunday. And uh, this event is recorded in all four Gospels. Now, the title comes from um, a, a, section, a, a verse in this passage where uh, they're saying Hosanna. They say Hosanna. Now, Hosanna is a Hebrew word for save us, please. And it's actually spelled with Greek letters in the New Testament. So Hosanna is what it sounds like in Hebrew. It's spelled that way in the New Testament, and it means save us. But it is an unexpected answer to prayer that everybody receives because nobody actually knows what's happening. And as they pray the right words, they're actually praying for something different than what happens. And so Jesus is going to answer this prayer for all of mankind, but in in an unexpected way. The crowd was looking for a political salvation, but Jesus came to provide spiritual salvation. And everybody missed the point of Palm Sunday. It was an amazing event. It, It is the week that is the pinnacle of human history. And when Uh, Adam and Eve sinned, and God said in Genesis 3.15, I'm going to send a seed. This is what he was talking about, that Jesus would come, and the whole purpose of Jesus' life was to die on the cross. So, So this is an answer to all of history. And if you think about the Old Testament and all the Jewish believers, they were waiting for the Messiah. This is what they were waiting for, and this is the week where it's all going to happen. And everybody missed it. The only one in this story that knows what's going on is Jesus. Uh, The disciples missed it, the crowds missed it, and the Pharisees missed it. And what ends up happening is not what anybody expected except what Jesus expected. And so just a, um, a timeline of what happens here in Jesus's ministry. If I could turn this on, I don't know if I can. Well, sound people are going to have to help me out today. Thank you. So Jesus' ministry is a little bit more than three and a half years. For four months, you have John the Baptist, Jesus' baptism, his temptation, then two years of public ministry. And he spends that in two different places, in Judea and in Galilee. So that's where he's spending his ministry. And then he has a private ministry, private preparation with his disciples for about six months. He avoids doing miracles. He's traveling in non-Jewish elder, uh, areas, and he's telling his disciples that he's going to die. And, and this perplexes them, and it's traumatizing to them. And what we realize is they never really accepted that. Um, then six months, kind of a mixed focus, and he raises Lazarus from the dead. And then 47 days, the final events, which is the Passion Week, seven days, and then the 40 days that Jesus is on earth after he ascends. So that's the ministry of Jesus. And the next slide 
is kind of an outline of this week. And so we're at Sunday. That's the triumphal entry. On Monday, he, he cleanses and possesses the temple. By the way, that happens twice in Jesus' ministry, where he cleanses the temple at the beginning and then again here. And then Tuesday, Jesus teaches and he inter, interacts with leaders. And it's pretty intense, the conversations that he has. Wednesday, Judas agrees to betray Jesus. Thursday is the Passover, the Last Supper, and Gethsemane. And then Friday, which we'll be celebrating this Friday, is where he's betrayed, arrested, crucified, and buried. And then Sunday, Jesus rises from the dead. So that's this week that we're celebrating, and we're starting today with the triumphal entry. Now, there are three groups of people that are mentioned in this passage. The crowds. They're there for a show, and we'll look at how Jesus explains that, how that's explained in the Gospel of John. And what's amazing is they rightly cite messianic prophecies about Jesus. So in some ways they're right, because they pick the right passages, and they say this is Jesus, and they quote those about Jesus, but they're there for political rescue, not spiritual salvation. The disciples, they are really excited about what's going to happen. And if you think about all the different things that Jesus said to them in, their, in, in his ministry, talking about how they were going to have thrones, and they think, okay, it's about to happen. We're finally going to get what we want. They're excited. The Pharisees are also greatly frustrated, filled with jealousy, envy, self-interest, totally overcome with an intense hatred and sinister desires toward Jesus, and they're very frustrated on this day. But they don't realize that before the end of the week, they're going to actually get what they want. So everything that's happening in everybody's mind on Palm Sunday is reversed. And the only person that knows exactly what's happening the entire time is Jesus. So let's Look at this, just a, a little bit of an overview about the gospel. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are written about 20 to 30 years after Jesus dies, and they all cover the, kind of cover the same, uh, the same things. That's why they're called the synoptic gospel. So you get three different views of the same events. John is written 20 to 30 years after the other three gospels. And what's interesting about the book of John is 92% of it is unique. So John writes knowing that people have read the other Gospels, and he writes to supplement it, and he gives additional information. Another thing about the Gospels is that Matthew presents Jesus as king, Mark presents Jesus as a servant, Luke is a doctor, and he presents Jesus as a man, and John presents Jesus as God. So that's the history. Look at chapter 12. Let's just read through this passage. John chapter 12, verse 12, the triumphal entry. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the, that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So this crowd hears, and they've been traveling, and they're heading to Jerusalem for the Passover, and there's a lot of excitement, and there's all these things that have happened to build energy. Now, the feast was the Passover, and just in case you don't remember what the Passover is, and I'm sure you all do, but it's the celebration of the exodus from Egypt. Do you remember that? That's why it's Passover, because after all those plagues and God's destroyed Egypt, he finally says, okay, you're getting out now, and I'm going to kill the firstborn in every single house, 
And the only way out of having your firstborn killed is to, put, is to sacrifice a lamb and put its blood on the, on the sides and the top of the door of the entry to your house. And if you do that, I'll pass over you. And so the Jews do that. Their firstborn isn't killed. Egypt is, is just in grief. And, and finally, Pharaoh says, okay, you guys can go. We know he changes his mind later. And so that's where this comes from. That's what they're celebrating. And they're supposed to celebrate that every year so that they never forget what happened. The other thing is that that's where the Lord's Supper, Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper on that day. So in a sense, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, by extension, we're celebrating that, that Jesus came to make a way for our sins to be passed over. So that's what's happening here. And now this was, you can read about that, by the way, Exodus 11 and 12. Now, as far as this, the number of people that were there, probably about several Passovers later, Josephus records that there were 2.7 million Jews that had come to celebrate the Passover. So that's not talking about this Passover, but we're talking about a lot of people that are there. And so they're there. And they are celebrating, it says in verse 13, so they took branches of palm trees, they went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, which is save us, please. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Now the palm branches, that symbolizes that the crowd viewed Jesus as their liberator, and they were citing Psalm 118, 25 to 26, which is talking about Jesus Christ, the anointed one. Now, Hosanna, we, t- we talked about that means, please save us. But they didn't rightly recognize their need for salvation. You know, John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And that's what Jesus is here to do, to provide for the world. Verse 14, it says, And Jesus found a young donkey, and he sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Again, this is identifying Jesus as the Messiah, and they're rightly identifying those things. Now, it's amazing how Jesus does everything, how he, he increases his popularity with the crowd. There's times that he didn't do things, and he didn't want people to know who he was. There was other times he was doing miracles and getting people's attention, and so the, the, the crowd is building. And the fact that Jesus, it's a huge celebration. There's all these people coming in, and had Jesus come in on a, on a white horse, That would have got the Romans' attention. Okay, that's how a king would come in. And there's all these people. And so when Jesus rides in on a donkey, this does not put this situation on the Romans' um, radar. They're not saying, hey, what's going on here? We need to get in here and stop this. So the the Romans, they are not even noticing what's happening. But for for the Jews, as Jesus rides into town, they know exactly what's happening. And so Jesus is riding in on a donkey. All of these things are happening. And this is a quotation from Zechariah 9, verse 9. And so the crowd is rightly proclaiming these messianic passages. Riding in on a donkey indicates peace and humility. Now, just a a side note, and when we 
get to Revelation, which is coming up in the next couple months, um, when we get to that, Jesus is going to come back again. And the next time he comes back, he's not going to be on a, on a young donkey. He's going to be on a white horse. He's going to come back as a conquering king. And, and what they were expecting is going to happen. And so that is coming in our future. Now, skip down to verse 17. We'll go back to verse 16. But we understand the motivation of the crowd. And this is something to think about because there's a lot of people that go, how could you for, on one day chant Hosanna and be chanting for Jesus, and then by Friday be chanting crucify him, because that's what happens. And we don't know if it's exactly the same crowd or the same people, but all of this happens, and how could there be such a switch? And we see Jesus talking about what was in the heart of the crowds, what was motivating them. And sometimes that's hard to know, because there's a lot of times that, that Jesus is popular, there's a lot of times Jesus isn't popular. And it's not popularity that we're pursuing or that we're seeking. It's a genuine relationship with Jesus that transforms life. And so Jesus says this in verse 17. It says, The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. And then look at verse 18. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. Now, it's interesting in the book of John, there's all these signs. In John, the Gospel of John, it says, these things I've written that you might believe. But one of the things you notice as you look at all the miracles that are done is after Jesus does these great miracles, there are some believe, who believe, but then there's also all, always a reference to people who don't believe. Have you ever thought, oh man, I remember as a kid just thinking, I really want to believe in Jesus. I really want to believe in God. If only he would appear to me, then I could believe in him. If only I could see some miracle. I wish I could go back and, to Bible times. And, and if that happened for me, then I'd believe. And one of the things that you discover as you read Scripture and as you look at how those miracles affected people is that it takes God working in your heart and... If you don't believe what the Bible says, you wouldn't believe even a miracle. You think about Luke 16, how, um, how uh, the rich man and Lazarus, and he says, send somebody back from the dead to talk to my brothers. And Abraham says to him, they have the law and the prophets, which means they have the Old Testament. And if they won't listen to that, they wouldn't listen even if somebody came back from the dead. So we think it takes miracles sometimes, but we realize what it really takes is God working in a person's heart. Now, here's something that Jesus said. He has just raised Lazarus from the dead. But think about how Jesus explains what's happening there. Jesus says to her, to Martha, your brother will rise again. And Martha says to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she says to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. One of the things that we find out is that Jesus has that conversation with Martha, but, but she was somewhere waiting. And when she heard Jesus was there, she goes to him and it says that all the Jews around followed her. So she wasn't the only one who heard that. That's what the crowds heard. 
and they're there. And it's interesting how that doesn't result in belief. Seeing Jesus raise somebody from the dead doesn't result in belief. And that happens actually in a bunch of miracles. For example, um, John chapter 6, you have the feeding of the 5,000. And so Jesus feeds the 5,000, and there's all these crowds, and then they're looking for him, and Jesus gives an, an evaluation as to why they're looking for him. And he says in verse 36 of John chapter 6, I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you don't believe. And he also says in verse 26 earlier, so he evaluates them as not believing. And then in verse 26, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. And he says, you're just here because you want more food. You want to see a, bit, a bigger, better show but you're not believing in me. And in John 12, 37, um, which is, happens later on in this week, he says to the crowd in John 12, 37, but though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. So you have crowds, they have all this opportunity, they have God's word, and some of the crowd is believing, but a lot of people in the crowd are not believing Let's look at the disciples. Have you ever heard somebody mock the disciples about how they weren't that bright? And how could Jesus tell them all this stuff and they just missed it? Well, it says here, verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So the disciples take a step back, and even though they missed it at the time, later the Holy Spirit helped them to understand it, and they realized, okay, this was Jesus. He was the Messiah, and they did believe, but they, were so, they, they got so confused, and they would go back and forth, and they were utterly devastated after Jesus was crucified. But the Holy Spirit later helps them understand. And we learn some things. In Luke chapter 22, verse 15, and we'll go through and we'll, we'll talk about this, but it just says, and he said to them, so this is Jesus, this happens after this event, it's recorded in Luke. Jesus is about to um, have the Lord's Supper in Luke twenty-two fifteen. 15. He says to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So Jesus has been telling them, I'm going to go to the cross, and they're not getting it. And he finally is like, okay, this is this moment, it's so important, and I really want to share the Lord's Supper with you. I earnestly desire. I mean, this is a big moment for Jesus. Think about what's going to happen in his life in Gethsemane, where he's going to be sweating like drops of blood and saying, God, please let this pass from me. And so, so this is a major thing for Jesus. And he says to these 12 men that he's been discipling, I really want to eat the Passover with you. And a few verses later, it's like, whew. Um, a dispute among, rose among them, this is verse 24 of Luke 22, as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. So Jesus is having this moment, and the disciples miss it and start fighting. You ever, you ever experience something like that in your family, where it's a really special moment, really important, and then the kids all start fighting? I mean, that's kind of what happens here. 
And we always mock the disciples and we think, oh man, they're so dumb and I wouldn't have missed it if I was there. But Luke chapter 18, verse 34 says, but the disciples understood none of these things and the meaning of this statement was hidden from them and they did not comprehend the things that were said. Have you ever wondered why Jesus, why God would hide the meaning of that from the disciples? It's kind of confusing. Like, I've always thought, why? Why not let them see that? And I don't actually, I can't tell you I know for sure, but as I think about it, I can see how God could have used that so tremendously and powerfully in their life, especially as you look at the way things worked out. First of all, they ended up having, as they look back on it, having such a clear view of who Christ was and just thinking, how could we have missed all that? Think about the humility that that would bring, that you were there, that you were watching it, that Jesus was telling you, and you missed it. You would never look at another person and say, you idiot. Like, think about Peter. He finally just proclaims, you know, Jesus says, who do you say I am? And, or who does everybody say I am? And then who do you say I am? And he says, you're the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus looks at him and says, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, but my Father in heaven. And then he says, I'm going to go to the cross. And Peter says, hey, Jesus, seriously, enough of that crazy talk. You know, we're not, don't, don't be saying crazy things like that. Like, can you picture the realization of, of Peter thinking to himself that he looks at Jesus, the God of the universe, and says, hey, Jesus, no more of that crazy talk. And then, and, and then right before the crucifixion where Jesus tells Peter, Peter, everybody's going to deny me. And Peter's like, <laughs> you know, these jokers might deny you, but I will never deny you. And then what does he do? He denies Jesus. And Jesus looks over at him and sees him right after, and he runs off in shame. Now think about the humility that that brings into a person's life who's going to be ministering on behalf of Jesus. And something else, how about spiritual confidence? Because what they realized was nothing was what they thought it would be. They're thinking, this is our time where we're going to be exalted. Jesus is going to be made king. We're going to be the 12, the 12 next most important people on earth. And they're kind of excited heading into um, on this triumphal entry. They're just like, this is our day has arrived. We've hit the lottery. It's, it's all happening for us. All the things we've gone through in the next three years, in the, in the last three years, man, it's happening today for us. And then it's gone. And what happened as they see Jesus crucified, they're like, okay, everything we thought was wrong, everything that we thought about who Jesus was, it's... They're, they're, they are just destroyed. They're like, okay, what happens? And then they're off fishing. And Jesus gets him and he brings him back and he says to Peter, do you love me? Remember that, all that stuff? That, that love, that reconciliation with Peter where he challenges him, inspires him to continue on and minister. Think about the spiritual confidence that that brings because that what they realize is life is not the way it seems. When we thought everything was going well, it wasn't going well. And then when we thought everything was ruined, it wasn't ruined. God is there and he is in control. And then they remember all these things that Jesus told them and they realize it's not random. This didn't just happen. This was all planned exactly the way God wanted it to be. 
And think about the confidence when, when you're going before people and you think, oh man, my life is over. They're, they're telling me they're going to kill me. And to just realize, you know, nothing happens that God doesn't want to happen. The confidence, the boldness to realize that nothing is as it seems. But the one thing I know for sure is that God is in charge and everything happens exactly the way he wants it to. So that is what they took with them because they missed what was happening. Verse 19, the Pharisees, think about them and the way they viewed this. Nothing happened as they expected it either. See, the Pharisees, verse 19, it says, So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. So the Pharisees were a prideful, arrogant group of religious leaders. And they saw Jesus as a threat. You'd think if anybody would recognize Jesus when he came, it should have been those spiritual leaders. But they missed it. And they hated Jesus. Now, I often wonder if what happened with Lazarus and what happened in these religious leaders' lives, if that is the sin of blasphemy, the unforgivable sin. And... I've had a friend one time that preached on that passage, and he says, you know, nobody can figure this stuff out. What exactly is the unforgivable sin? And he's like, Raj, I'm going to do my diligence this week. I am going to study, and I am going to get this locked down. I'm preaching it to the church on Sunday. So like two, three weeks later, I called him, and I said, hey, how'd that go? I want to hear that sermon. And he's like, no, it didn't go how I had planned. <laughs> but I've often wondered, is this the sin of blasphemy that, that the Pharisees committed? Look at... Um, John chapter 11, if you have your Bibles, you can go back just a little ways. Talking about Lazarus, it says, So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we do to do? For this man performs many signs. So they're looking at the raising of Lazarus and all the things that Jesus is doing. I mean, who, nobody can do that except God. You remember when, when Jesus says, um, to the man, your sins are forgiven, that, that they bring in on the pallet. And um, he can read their mind and they're grumbling and saying, who do you think you are to forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. And then he says, yes. And to let you know I have the power to forgive sins, I'm going to tell this guy, get up and walk. So Jesus has been clearly communicating to them who he is, and they hear it and they see it. He's performing many signs. Verse 48, and if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Okay, he's raising people from the dead. People are going to know he's God. He's forgiving people of their sins and then telling them to get up and walk. He's helping blind people see and lame people walk. Anybody who sees this will know that he's the Messiah and believe in him. You'd think they'd say, let's believe in him. And then we get a little window into their heart because it says, if we let him go on like this, everyone believe, will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So what was driving them? What was motivating them? I'm here. This is for me. I want the power. And, and if you think about how hard-hearted do you have to be to look at God on earth doing all these things and to say, let's kill you so I can keep what I have. And that was their response. Verse 49, but one of them, 
Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. So what's interesting is that's a really wicked, sinful desire. He's just saying, we're going to lose our place. Let's kill Jesus. But the way that he phrases that, he actually prophesies like this evil person having sinful desires says words that are true, that God speaks through him because of his position. It says, verse 51, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one, the children of God who are scattered abroad. Jesus died not just for the Jews, but for every nation. And so I often wonder, is that the sin of blasphemy? And so the, 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 the spiritual leaders, those Pharisees, are so frustrated because Jesus is so popular. What, what could they do? The crowds, they're all in favor of Jesus. And they're saying, look, we've set our heart to try to kill him. We're doing everything that we can, and nothing is of any use. They felt like they were losing but they didn't realize that in five days they were going to get exactly what they wanted. It inspired them. It motivated them. They were so driven that when they saw their moment, they would do anything to seize that opportunity, even to stand and say, we have no king but Caesar. So the Jews are willing to, to these Jewish religious leaders are willing to swear allegiance to Caesar to kill Jesus. That's how set they were. And yet the reality is that Jesus died to save even them. And one of the things that's really cool to see is that not all of those Pharisees were saved, but some of them were. And we see that later. So let's just think through some application on this. Jesus is riding in as the king. Everybody misses it. Jesus is the only one who knows what's going on. Have you ever heard it said that hindsight's 2020? Like looking back, we can always see things a little more accurately, but what's even better is we don't just have hindsight, but we have God's interpretation and evaluation of the hindsight through Scripture. So what, what do we learn? We learn, number one, that Jesus is the Messiah, that He is the Christ, that He was who He said He was, that He is who He said He is, and that He is the King, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He deserves all worship and praise. And we give Jesus that worship with our words, with our affections, and with the way that we live our life. We are worshiping Jesus for who he is. We need to believe in Jesus. That's a, that's a personal response to who he is and what he did. And seeing things and reading the Bible isn't enough. You need God's work in your heart through those things to bring you into a relationship with Jesus. Everyone saw the same things, but not everybody believed. The disciples, man, the confidence they had, Jesus is always in control. I don't care how things look. I'm with Jesus, and that's enough. Remember when um, Jesus, after the feeding of the 5,000, all the crowds are leaving? And um, Jesus says uh, to his disciples, hey, you guys going to leave too? Everybody else left. And they say, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You are the Holy One of God. We have nowhere else to go but you. 
And I think as we think about this rightly, that should give you confidence. When you live in a world and in a culture that is rejecting Jesus, if you're around people that, are, that, that hate religion or any of that kind of stuff, for you to say, you know what, I'm with Jesus and I trust being with him because he has this all under control. And the Pharisees, they're religious. Religion doesn't save people. A relationship with Jesus saves people. And that's something that helps us as we think about all the religions in the world. There's a lot of religious people who are lost. And I would say it's even possible to show up to a good, solid, faithful Christian church and be lost. Because religion doesn't save people. A relationship with Jesus saves people. And the amazing thing is that as hard-hearted as those Pharisees were, Jesus saved some of them. And for us to just have the confidence, when you meet somebody that you think there's no way that that person could ever come to Christ, that's not true. God can save anyone. And it, it encourages us and inspires us to share the gospel. And so my encouragement to you is Easter's coming up. Everybody goes to church. Well, half the people in the country go to church. Um, look for opportunities to share the gospel. Look for opportunities to invite someone to come. And be prepared next week. You never know what a person's going through when they walk through the doors, what happened in their week, what is happening in their life. You have no idea who's been praying for them. Um, maybe one of our, this congregation has been praying for a neighbor and inviting that neighbor to come to church. And on Easter Sunday, they walk through the doors and, and your brother or sister in Christ that's here is praying, Lord, help people to greet them, be friendly, love them, encourage them. Lord, help whatever the pastor says to be encouraging to this person. And, and for you to say, I am a part of the evangelism ministry of other people, you have no idea. My dad for many years was not a believer, and I used to pray, God, let him run into a Christian at work, somebody that will talk to him. And it could be that somebody just wanders in here because you stuck a flyer on their door. And somebody's parents or brother or family member or friend has been praying for them and they just happen to randomly stumble in here. And so for us to be on duty and to love people and to care about people and to welcome people, and when you see somebody walking through that door, to pray for that person. So that's what's happening. And, and let's pray for our church that will do well. It sounds so nice to say our church now. but to pray for the fact that that's happening, not just at Foothills, that's happening all over our state, our city, our country, and the world. Let's pray that people will be effective in that opportunity. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for loving us, for taking on humanity, for being our merciful high priest. Lord, help us to boldly reach out and to wisely reach out to people with the gospel. And Lord, we just ask that we would have a confidence, that we would be willing to stand with you no matter what. Thank you for your word and the perspective that it gives us in life. In your name. Amen.